This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com, you know you want to. Lawless, in her own words, is a queer Sydney-based sex worker who utilises her online platform to speak about her personal experiences within the sex industry in an attempt to shine a light on the everyday stigma that sex workers come up against. Her book, Nothing But My Body, is a thought-provoking read that will have you intrigued and uncomfortable. Maybe. Same goes for her chat with Yana. You'll meet the uncompromisingly honest Tilly next. Tilly, it is a pleasure to have you on The Curious Life today. I'm so excited to talk to you. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone who Googles you, there's so much that you've done. You've done a TED Talk. You've written the most amazing, powerful, incredible book, which is right here. Oh, I love it. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, I smashed it in like two days. Couldn't put it down. Oh, perfect. What you're most known for, and I guess as they talk about, you know, in all your introductions is kind of talking about sex work from a new perspective that Mm. often gets missed in the mainstream media. But I'd love to know a little bit more about Tilly the person Uh and where you came from, where your life started. I know you were born in northern New South Wales and grew up. Oh, I mean, I was actually born in Sydney. Oh, but right. I grew up up there. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so what was life like for young Tilly up north? Yeah, so I actually, I mean, I simplify descriptions of my life a little bit because I was actually born in Sydney and then I lived in the Hunter Valley till I was five. Oh. And then I lived in Sydney from five to 10. And then I lived in northern New South Wales from 10 till 19. So I consider myself a country girl because most of my like up till I was 20, most of my years were spent in a country town, either in the Hunter Valley or Northern New South Wales. But I have had a few years in Sydney, which is why also when I finished high school, this was the city that I decided to move to because I was a little bit familiar with it. I had a pretty idyllic childhood in like many, in many ways. Like, you know, like I lived on a property, like we had cattle, we had horses, you know, I spent most days like swimming in the river or like in summertime, you know, I would get a book and like read in the river and just like eat mangoes in the river. And I, I like, I really loved growing up there, but in my teens, it became a lot more difficult for like a number of reasons, which was that, you know, I lived 15 Ks out of a town of 2000 people. So I was like quite isolated. There wasn't, there wasn't, uh, you know, train stations around there. There was only the one bus that went on school days for school. So it was really hard to see friends and things like that. And so in my teens, that became difficult because for two reasons, largely because I, you know, was realizing that I was gay and there weren't gay people in my area. And there weren't places to go as a gay teen. Like there was only basically the internet, you know, and that was very much the only sort of like sense of like community that I had as a queer person at that time was online. And the other reason was I also had a um, really dysfunctional relationship with um, my mother that was like fastly disintegrated. It, it was bad in my childhood anyway, but it like quickly disintegrated through my teens. And I was left with her for like long periods of time, like on this property that was isolated and that 
very much like exacerbated my mental health. So as much as like I love the area I come from being a really isolated teen with mental health issues was very, very difficult at times. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you know, for me growing up in the middle of Melbourne, for my adolescence, all I had to do was, you know, hop out the front door, jump on a tram and I was in the city or I was on Chapel Street or where I was at any one of my friends' places within minutes. So I can't imagine, and particularly for adolescents, that connection with your friends is so important, especially if you're trying to escape something at home where, you know, you've got a fractious kind of relationship with your mum. So, I mean, how did you actually manage that? I mean, I did have a friend that I could walk to that was about three kilometres walk away. So I used to go to hers (laughs) and we'd like get drunk and like pull cones and things like that. But a lot of the time it was just the internet I turned to. And I think that having such a tight knit relationship with the internet from like such a young age, you know, like 12 years old and, you know, like being on forums and um, chat websites and basically everything parents didn't want you to be on, you know, like I was on DeviantArt and Post Secret and, um, you know, Amigle and Chat Roulette. And like, I was talking to people from all around the world of different ages and sending nudes of me and all that kind of stuff. And like the internet was like a solace and a place of safety for me. And I think that's also why I was so comfortable in transitioning to social media platforms and being like really transparent and emotionally vulnerable on social media because the internet had been a safe space for me and something that I was like very, very familiar with. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, a lot of parents worry that the internet is a dangerous place for all of those reasons, you know, yeah. the fact that, you know, you are sending nudes as a, as a young child and technically a child and, yeah. and connecting with complete strangers and stuff like that, that's fear-provoking for parents. Definitely. It can yeah. be definitely be dangerous, but at the other end, if you're like in a living situation with an emotionally abusive parent and you're suicidal, like the internet is like, for a lot of the time, it was, it was the only thing I had you know, and it got me through like a lot of, a lot of tough things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you finished school, I understand from doing a little bit of research (laughs) that you had a scholarship to uni in Sydney. So what, what were you studying? I did a BA and I majored in history, um, mainly modern history. And I also studied a fair bit of literature as well. So I really didn't know much of what I was doing in that, like I got, I got an equity scholarship. So I was like, fuck yeah, like I'll go to Sydney. And as I said, I was already like a little bit familiar with Sydney and came down here and went to uni. I had no idea what I wanted to do in the long run with a degree or anything like that, but like, I've always loved history. So yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And so obviously, you know, I know you get asked this all the time, but this is, I guess, the jumping off point and people will be Mm. interested to know how you actually came to sex work. Because I understand that started for you um, at uni. Yeah. So I, my first year of uni, I like struggled by on like, oh, I had, I had money from the scholarship and I was also on Centrelink because I was studying. And then I was doing like a little bit of cash in hands, like work babysitting and working at a bar. But you know, I didn't have any family like support in terms of money or anything like that. And I was living out of home and obviously it's really expensive to live in Sydney. So by my second year of uni, I was like, fuck, this is really a struggle. Like I need to find something that will um, allow me to like financially survive, but also still give time for me to study because I had to keep up a certain mark for my scholarship. And so I was like drug dealing, sex work, drug dealing, sex work, just because they're both like those two stereotype things that are meant to be like financially lucrative. And I was like, oh, well, like, 
I'll try sex work because I didn't think I was discreet enough for drug dealing. And so <laughs> I like spoke to a friend I'd made in like gender studies. And I was like, I've been thinking of trying, I think we probably called it prostitution at the time because we didn't know better with the terminology. And she was like, oh, I've been thinking of trying it as well. And so we just like called up an escort agency together, went in for a meeting and like started straight away. And I changed from escorting to like, um, massage parlor work after two months because I didn't I really didn't like escort like escorting with an agency and then I you know started doing full service massage and then brothel work and then private escorting and then back to brothel work and I've done a little bit of what like um, online work and it's been more than eight years now that I've been in the sex industry doing full service sex work specifically and yeah I've just stuck with it it's a job that brings you so much. Like obviously there are a lot of downsides to it as there are with any work. And like, I have a bit of a love hate relationship with it. And especially at times when my mental health has been bad, I've often had a really um, not a good relationship with it, but it brings you so much flexibility in terms of time and able to devote your time to things that you want to do. And it's brought me financial stability that I would have not had otherwise so I'm really grateful for it largely yeah absolutely oh that was such a steal no I love it that's what we're here for we're here to chat (laughs) so I mean there's so many questions and I think for a lot of people that don't know anything about the sex industry all all we know is what we see in documentaries and like you've talked about previously it's all one or the other isn't it you're either seeing women that are Um, come from traumatic backgrounds that you know sort of seem to have no other alternative and it's a terrible thing that they've ended up there or the concept of women being empowered and there's Mm. it's like one or the other and there's sort of you don't you don't hear many people just telling their own story from uh, a real perspective the way that you do beautifully in your book and in your TED talk and other interviews that you've done Mm. so I guess to kind of help people understand how did you how did you first of all I've got so many questions I'll try and get get back to the beginning so how did you go from you know being someone who I imagine was doing it quite discreetly not many people Mm. knowing about it to suddenly becoming such a public figure oh so that happened quite inadvertently so I'd been I started working when I was 20 it would have been halfway through 2013 Mm -hmm. And I, a few close friends knew, you know, and then in about like two years later, so like beginning to mid 2015, basically I saw this article online by Mamma Mia, um, which, you know, like I have issues with Mamma Mia. Like I think that, I mean, I would call them feminism light, but, you know, they tend to be like, you know, quite like anti-trans and anti-sex work and stuff. And they did this article about Pretty Woman and they were saying that like Pretty Woman was glamorizing sex work and drawing women into prostitution and that like the reality of um, prostitution wasn't like Julia Roberts, like gap tooth, like beautiful smile. It was like this woman. And they showed this woman who looked like she'd been beaten up, like lying in this like street. And so like, I just, I was already at that time using my Instagram as like a diary. Like I was like writing like long posts. And so like, I just, you know, referenced the article and responded to it and said something like, you know, there's no one story of sex work. Like there's a myriad of stories and like everyone's diverse and has a different experience with with it. And I just like hashtagged at faces of prostitution because they'd said face of prostitution. And so, like, I just wanted to, you know, 
kind of diversify it and say that there was a multitude and that hashtag went viral on Twitter and then like went all over the news. And I think also people thought because of my name, because I have an unusual last name, they thought that it was like a fake name. Mm-hmm. So my name also got like sprayed, you know, like on the Brazilian news and the German news and BBC. And it was just like everywhere. And um, I was just like, oh, fuck. Well, I guess that's it. Like everyone knows now that I'm a sex worker. Um, it's on the internet forever. There's nothing I can do to change that. <laughs> and so I was just like, I guess I need to take that moment. You know, I've been given a platform inadvertently. And so I was like, I should just go with it. And also I did kind of feel like a responsibility in that, like I was in a lucky position to be able to speak about it and not have to worry about, for example, my kids being taken off me and like a custody battle, which often happens. Or like I didn't have to worry about like losing a normal job that I had or anything like that. So I was like, I kind of felt like a bit of an obligation to continue speaking about it. So that's that's where that all started was, yeah, really by accident, quite an organic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how did your family respond? Did you you get a chance to tell them first before So my dad and my brother already knew. I had told them like maybe like when I was like six months into working or something because I'm quite close with both of them. So I told them myself. Um, My extended family found out through the media stuff. That did not go down well. I mean, it's been, fuck, so many years since then now, six years since then, and there's still extended family members that I that I'm, you know, I'm not welcome to some family events and things because of my work. Half of my family, I was already estranged from before this. I mean, I didn't really feel the lack that much. And a a number of my family members already had issues with me because I was gay, because I have a lot of like really, really, really Christian family members because my granddad was a preacher. To be honest, like me being a prostitute was just a double whammy on top of me being a lesbian, you know, like. (laughs) so like already going to hell. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah, like there was a huge, there was a huge fallout and like ripple effect across like my wider extended family, but I was already a pariah in some ways. So it wasn't like I lost close relationships that mattered to me. Okay. Because I think that's one of the things that people wonder about is like you're talking about the faces of prostitution. We don't mm-hmm. see all the stories of people who who come to this work and so you just assume that these are people without families or people that are, are disconnected or you know you don't yeah you don't get the whole picture but you know you're saying your dad and your brother you know you're very close with and they understand i mean that i think that's another common stereotype or misconception possibly about um sex workers is that there's usually some kind of no father situation oh god the no the daddy issues thing is so ridiculous I actually joke about this with other sex workers all the time because like I like at the brothel I work at all of us have mummy issues most (laughs) of us don't speak to our mums and we're like like I know that one of the reasons I've always been like I offer one of the reasons I love brothel work and have remained in that even though escorting is technically more money is um, because I really love having the community of women around me and I've also especially appreciated having older women around me who've like taken me under their wing and have kind of been like a mother figure to me. So like I know that my the fact that I haven't spoken to my mum in coming up to 12 years now has impacted the way I am in the sex industry. And like, yeah, as I said, so many of the women I speak to have mummy issues rather than daddy issues. Like this daddy issues thing is just like a... Anyway, and then also there are also so many women who do sex work whose families like the majority of women who do sex work their families don't know they do sex work 
Mm-hmm. So there are so many women who also just have functional everyday relationships with their families because their families have no idea what they do. So the idea that sex workers come from a traumatic upbringing is like completely ridiculous. And then also there are sex workers whose families do know what they do and are totally okay with it. As you said, like, you know, people go one way or the other with the way they view it. And it's like everyone's relationship is just is so completely different and unique, you know? What was it like the first time you had sex as a sex worker? That's an obvious question, right? And of course, you'll find out Tilly's answer in just a moment. I'm always interested in documentaries about this kind of work. And I don't know what it is that a lot of of my friends as well, you know, if something's come out, like we'll be interested to see it Mm. and, you know, understand more because it's been such a kind of secret yeah profession for so long and there are these stereotypes and misconceptions out there I guess because sex is like an exciting thing you yeah. sort of there's this oscillation between like oh that sounds like a kind of exciting oh my god I don't know if I could ever do that yeah or yeah really scary and oh my god I could never do that yeah well, I so- think it touches on so many taboos and especially concepts of how women should behave and what we are allowed to monetize and like you know like women aren't meant to be sexual anyway so the fact that you're sexual and then financially capitalizing off it is really challenging to a lot of notions of um, the way women should be in society like it is a job that just yeah challenges like a lot a lot of different things and it also just really discomforts people you know and like often in like a knee-jerk way they don't even know why they're discomforted by it yeah it's like is the woman on the screen that you're watching somehow a threat to your marriage because you're hearing her story? Yeah, 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 totally. I wonder if things are changing with social media because, you know, women are naked on social media and make money off it every Mm. single day, hundreds of thousands of women. And you might not call it sex work, but 15 years ago even, maybe even 10 years ago, there was nothing like that where women could make money from their bodies in a way that was kind of just socially acceptable the way that it I is mean, now. Yeah, no, definitely. There were obviously women were making money off the money off their body, but not it was not as visible to people. Mm. The internet has really like put it out there. I mean, I do still call things like selling nudes of yourself sex work. It's just it's, you know, sex work is an umbrella term for so many different kinds of work, you know, like stripping, peep show, um, OnlyFans, like brothel work. They're all kinds of sex work. Um, but obviously some are, as you said, more accepted than others. It's such a it's such a weird thing, especially with something like OnlyFans, because like that's getting so much publicity and stuff now. Mm. And it's like, and, you know, like you can be somewhere like America and it's legal to do OnlyFans, but then it's illegal to do my kind of work, you know? And it's like, why is it legal to fuck someone on a video and sell it online if it's filmed, but it's not, and you're paid for that, but it's not legal for me to fuck someone um, and be paid for it, but not be filmed, you know? Like, mm. it's like, if yeah. I suddenly added a camera into my bookings, would they suddenly be okay? You know, it's such a... <laughs> It's, it's so, I mean, it's so hypocritical. Yeah. 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 And, I, and that's probably a lot to do with largely these countries come from religious oh, beginnings. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah America's yeah. so much so like Puritanism for sure. Yeah. 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 And I guess, you know, the thing that comes to mind for me is that first time. So, you know, luckily for you, when you got into this, you went into it with a friend. So you had someone yeah. who also hadn't been through it and you kind of exploring that first like conversation and that first meeting with the escorting agency together and that kind of thing. But 
like all of that's really great and you feel confident, but how do you actually go into the room or go on the, the first booking? Like, were you just ready to go? I just, I feel like if I put myself yeah. in your shoes, like the first time. I to be honest, just... it was a huge anticlimax. Oh, really? Um, in that I, I think, look, I think my experience is also really influenced by the fact that I'm gay. So, like, I'd only slept with women up till I was 19. I slept with the first guy I ever fucked when I was 19, and then I started sex work six months later. And so the first client I saw was only the second guy I'd ever fucked. And I think it just made it hugely different for me because I think it felt so disconnected from my personal life Mm. because I'm I'm only into women. So it was just, like, went to the booking... Like it was at oh, I was at the Four Seasons in the city. Like I walked there from the escort agency. Like he was just like this generic American guy in the Navy that had been like stationed there for a few days. Like we had sex in Doggy, and like I was so unused to heterosexual sex that I could hear this noise when he was fucking me in Doggy, and I was like, "What is that noise?" Like it sounded like a thwack thwack noise, and I was like, "Is it my tits?" Like I was like looking around trying to work out what this noise was. Like. And then I finally realized like it was his like beer belly, like hitting my ass in Dolby. And I didn't even know that was a sound that could happen because I hadn't, it was only the second guy I'd ever fucked, you know? So like, I was just so like, and then yeah, that happened and he came and then he gave him the money and I was like, cool. That was so easy. I didn't feel changed by it at all. But like, as I said, I think that, I think my sexuality influences that so much because I do know straight friends of mine who do this work. They can sometimes struggle to differentiate, like, you know, if they're fucking guys all day and then they come home to their boyfriend and fuck their boyfriend and maybe their boyfriend fucks them in a similar way to one of the clients. And they're like, I don't know, it can be like conflicting, but like, I don't feel that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I know, you know, it's the same in any other kind of work. When I was a counselor at the coroner's court Mm. for a long time, I could not come home and watch anything to do with death or murder Mm. or anything like that. Nothing, anything like work. And if, you know, and so for me, I was, I had to have that clear boundary between work and home. Totally. And yeah, so I can imagine it's You need a separation. I remember actually this brothel manager I worked under once, she was always like, lesbians are the best prostitutes he was like they work for the longest they love like it's just like, like I'm like maybe there's some truth to that like, yeah. yeah I mean really you know because that I guess that that was something that was also you know as a therapist I'm always very interested in the mental health perspective and how mm. you kind of find a way to take care of yourself psychologically mm. when you are doing a lot of similar things that I do is totally. taking on people's stories and yeah. sitting with people and being emotionally and energetically giving, you know, for the entire time that you're working and then you come home and you're exhausted and you don't want to talk to anyone and you don't want to think about anything anymore. So, you know, how do you manage the psychological yeah, I side mean, of it? Yeah, the emotional, the emotional labour is difficult. I will say like I've gone through periods of like extreme burnout. If I've been working a lot, like if I've been doing like four or five shifts a week, um, I've had periods where, you know, I haven't been able to work for a month. Um, I can't even speak to a man on the street because my capacity for men is just so depleted from my work. I mean, it's really difficult because there, it's really difficult to navigate because there have been points in my life where I've been so broke that I haven't been able to afford to stop working and I've had to push through and work through burnout. And that is the most awful, awful thing because you're completely drained and you're having to engage with someone in a sympathetic way when you actually just don't even have that, that sympathy or ability to give. 
these days I'm really lucky in that I've got to a point in my life where I'm in a financial position where I can afford to take time off if I'm burnt out. So if I, you know, find I do three shifts in a week and I'm just like, fuck, I can't, I can't have an intimate conversation with someone for a bit. I'll just take a week off, you know? Yeah. And I also now know my limits in terms of how much I can work without hitting that burnout. But for the first, you know, God, like, six years of my working it was very much like uh, I would I considered myself a sprinter in that I would do like huge stints of working heaps and then I would have to have a huge break you know Mm. and whereas now I would say I'm more of a stayer you know like I can just like work out what works for me and keep at that kind of steady pace but yeah it's really difficult like and it's also really difficult because we have as sex workers you have no space to talk about your burnout because when you do talk about the fact of burnout people say that's why your job shouldn't exist like that's why you shouldn't be doing it you know like um it's obviously bad for you and it's like nurses can talk about burnout like as you said therapists can talk about burnout other people are allowed space for that and it's not used as an argument as to why their job you know is bad or whatever so yeah, it, it makes it, it makes it really yeah complicated, but. Well, there yeah. are a lot of parallels as you're talking. It, it's a lot of parallels between just being green in your profession. I mean, I know for oh, me, yeah. you know, when I first started my, the first job I did out of uni was in child protection and I was a sprinter like you, I was working mm-hmm. crazy intense hours doing a really full on taxing, emotionally taxing job. And then I completely burnt out. Yeah. And it's because I was young in the in the profession. I didn't know what professional boundaries were. I didn't know yeah. how to look after myself and what. And unfortunately, the people around me were working just as crazy hours. And, you know, there was no choice to bring it down. But as I progressed in my professional life, I figured out what works for me and what kind of hours and how much mm-hmm. energy I can expend before I'm going to completely burn out and you're actually so right I hadn't even thought about the fact that it takes time to learn in any career those boundaries of what works for you yeah that's yeah. Like, that makes so much sense yeah well it definitely took me yeah about five years to work it out <laughs> yeah yeah I was young when I started though <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think I think that's reasonable because yeah. you know when you're young and you've got a job any job you are throwing yourself into it you yeah. you've got a career you're making money for the first time you like mm-hmm. want to prove yourself it's all kind of all of those things interlaced and so you don't know that you can say actually, I need to look after myself. This is not working for me. You don't have a voice when you're a young professional. Totally. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I think it's interesting that people make that comment to you that it's about your job, but I don't, I think it's just a. I mean, that just comes from the stigma around sex work though. Like they're looking for an in, Mm. you know, to say what they've wanted to say all along. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the problem with it. Yeah. That's yeah. It. That's yeah. it. It's not anything to do with me and what I think it's, it's about, yeah, that's why the job shouldn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Do you, you know, I know um, I was single for mm-hmm. eight years after a long relationship in my early twenties mm-hmm. and I experienced a really interesting level of judgment from other women simply by virtue of the fact that I was a single woman entering mm-hmm. a room yeah. And immediately I was seen as a threat, even if I was just there because it was my friend's party, my friend's yeah. birthday, whatever. Women would give you those side eyes and be and make you feel like there was something wrong with you or that you were a predator just by existing. So yes. I can imagine that, you know, yeah. for some women as well who might meet you, for example, you might get 
a similar kind of experience have has anyone responded to you it's just I mean that kind of thing is just unfortunate it's so unfortunate that we as women are socialized to be be competitive with each other and we're taught this kind of scarcity myth that there's not Mm -hmm. enough men to go around and so we have to compete for them look I don't get it that much because I feel I'm firstly like often if I if I am feeling it from someone I will very quickly mention that I'm gay and that usually makes women like less threatened by me but also I think people in social scenarios see how little interest I have in speaking to men mm-hmm. like my friends like always joke about me but like I basically have a boyfriend ban you know like my friends like if they want to hang out with me no never bring your boyfriend is never welcome like I do not need to speak to some man that you're dating I'm happy for you that you're happy but like my relationship is with you you know yeah. and like you know like whenever I have parties or like I was gonna have a book launch it's cancelled now obviously because of COVID but like I was gonna have a book launch and like you know invited 65 friends into every one of them I was like no you can't bring a plus one you can't bring your boy friend like so I am kind of like it's not that it's not that I hate men but I just like I don't have much time for them I deal with them at work all the time like I just like I can't like I mean a lot of my friends are gay men but I'm talking about cis straight men here so to be honest I don't get much of that from women because it's very apparent that if there's a room full of people the last person I'm going to talk to is the man like the straight man in the room like I just cannot be bothered I mean, yes, when I was younger, I did get that because like, you know, like I'm, I generally dress quite feminine and people might see me as a threat, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't really happen so much anymore. I think people generally know that like, I'm completely uninterested in people's partners. Yeah. (laughs) Like, don't even, one of my best friends has been with her boyfriend for five years. They live together. I've never met him. We oh, talk, wow. we talk on the phone, you know, like five days, you know, four or five days a week. Like we hang out all the, obviously not at the moment because the lockdown, but we hang out all the time. I've never met him. She's like, oh, Tilly, I know you don't really want to meet him. But I'm like, no, I don't need to meet him. Like, like, uh, could not be less of a threat. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. But, you know, talking about your friendships, that's one of the themes that is so strong in your beautiful book. Mm. And you that's kind of I mean there are so many really great strong themes and each chapter's kind of got a little bit of a different theme Mm. you talk about the bushfires and the experience of being from the country and you just write about that so poetically and so beautifully um and isolation and the concept of resilience and all of those like really important things but the friendship and the love that you have for your friends is the strongest love throughout yeah and you know I can hear from what you're saying that you know obviously your friends are everything to you and Mm. I wonder how are you coping with lockdown and isolation and being in Sydney in this difficult time and not being able to be with the people you love yeah that's obviously so hard and I mean that was so hard last year and that that missing my friends and like grieving the fact that I couldn't see a lot of them for such a long time and especially the overseas ones like very much like influence the whole tone of the book as you've yeah. like as you've obviously like noted yeah look it's really hard I can't like I I'm such a social person I you know I spoke to nine different fan- friends on the phone yesterday you know like I'm just like constantly on the phone having phone calls like um, and I go on a walk with a different friend every day I mean, to be honest, the one thing that's getting me through now that I didn't have last year, like last year was like, when am I going to see my friends again? Like, I have no idea. And that was like really distressing. The one thing that is getting me through now is like, I'm vaccinated. I'm 
planning to go over to London in May next year to see my friends. I'm sure I'll be able to at that point. Like I know there'll be like, you know, vaccine passports by that point in terms of like being Australian. And so now I'm just like, oh my God, like I can see my overseas friends in less than a year. Like it's a matter of like counting down the months. And so like that is like really really exciting because you know I haven't by the time I see them I wouldn't have seen them in two and a half years but yeah lockdown lockdown is really really difficult I'm trying I just try not to think about it that much to be honest like take it a day at a time yeah yeah that's all you can do really yeah Obviously, there's a stigma around sex work. Tilly talks about the good bits and you hear the chat around breaking that stigma down. And so what about writing? So how did you, I mean, you are such an incredible writer. There's no doubt that you are one of the strongest young new voices in Australian writing there's just not like I, I've been telling everyone about this and my dad is actually going to be the next person to read your oh book. I love that <laughs> I've just raved I was like oh my god you've got to read this book I said you probably won't get a few of the things yeah. you know, I don't think he'll know much about Kay or Berlin yeah. you know parties yeah. and stuff that you know we understand but I, I just think your writing needs to be read by everyone it's brilliant Thank so you. when did you start writing and how did you Ooh. get to the book Honestly, since I was a kid, like I was writing stories when I was like five, six years old. I first tried to write a novel when I was 15. And then for many years, I was like, I was still writing, obviously, but it was all on my Instagram. Like my Instagram was like an online diary or whatever. And I've always wanted to write a book. Like, as I said, I tried in my teens. And then when lockdown happened last year, and I've always been like, oh, I don't have time to write it. Like, I'm so busy working, which was true. Like, I did work a lot. And then when lockdown happened, I was like, okay, I have no excuse. Like, if I don't try now, like, I never will. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to try to do it. And if it doesn't get picked up, no worries. I've tried that I can put the concept to bed. And so that's how that happened. The book itself was like, not all the writing in it is new. Like it's uh, about 5,000 words of it comes from pieces I've written in the past, like, um, you know, from Instagram or like there's even a paragraph in there that comes from as far back as when I was 17, you know? So there's like, there's 10 years worth of like writing and thoughts put into that. Yeah. And the, like the structure I was like sort of thinking about at like um, the beginning of 2020 and I was like plotting it out on notes on my phone. And then when lockdown happened, that's when like I properly started writing it. Yeah. Fantastic. And how did you get to be published? Because I mean, this is like, that doesn't just happen to everybody. Yeah. So that was very serendipitous. So I've, I wrote it from March to September. Mm-hmm. And then I Googled agents and there was like an agent that interested me um, because she'd represented another author. I really liked Gillian Mears and she seemed to represent a lot of women authors. And so I just emailed her and was like, look, I've written this book because you can't send like unsolicited manuscripts or whatever. So I, you know, emailed her like with kind of like a description of what the book was. Like, would you be interested in reading it? She's like, yeah, I'd like to read it. Um, her name's um, Gabby. She's at Left Bank Literary. So I sent it through to her and then she read it and she's like, I really like it. I want to meet up with you. And so we met up and really got along and then we worked on publishing, uh, sorry, sorry, editing it a little bit. Like I, cause originally it was only seven days and I wasn't, cause it was meant to just be a week, but then the seventh day was so depressing and I wanted to finish on like a happier note. And also I wanted to show that the fluctuations continue on beyond that week, you know, like that everything 
every mood change and stuff just is like a, a everlasting sort of like thing. So I wanted to add that eighth day. So I added the eighth day. And then once I did that, she was like, you know what? I actually think it's ready to send rounds because um, it was um, October by that point. And apparently like they don't often take, publishers don't really take manuscripts at the end of the year because like a lot of things they kind of close off around like Christmas period and stuff. So she was like, I think we should just send it out now. So it got sent to five publishers and four of them came back saying they wanted it. And then it went to a bidding wall and then, yeah, it ended up going with Alan Unwin. So to be honest, the whole process was really, really streamlined, which I know is like not a lot of people's experiences, but like, I will say as like streamlined as that kind of six month process was, there was 10 years of writing before that, you know, or like really more like 20 years if I go back to my childhood. And what I didn't realize um, in going into it like I you know was like oh no one's gonna be interested like you know I'm a new person or whatever I didn't realize that to publishing houses I was an established voice because I'd proven through my Instagram that I had an audience that engaged with me so that was something that I that affected the way they responded to the manuscript as well was that like I kind of you know yes it's I'm a debut novelist but it wasn't like I was like a emerging writer like I was already in some ways an established writer because I'd spoken at writers festivals and things like that yeah 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 and not a total unknown I mean you did a TED talk as well like that's massive Yeah. yeah yeah that's that's so exciting and I know we're here to talk about this book but are there ideas for more books in yeah the so I've just finished writing a second book which I loved writing it was so much fun um it's a magical realism novel set in northern New South Wales and it's about three teenage girls and their respective relationships with their mothers mm. and you know like one has a really quite abusive dysfunctional relationship with her mother anyway they're all they're all they're all yeah different different mother-daughter relationships and um I use a Scottish myth that I'm not going to say which one it is because it Mm -hmm. would ruin it but I use a Scottish myth to draw parallels between um sort of like being entrapped in dysfunctional family relationships and it was so so much fun to write because it's it's a more traditional book and that like it's like you know third person past tense um you know chapters like Mm. um and because it was you know kind of fantasy elements I could just let my imagination go wild and it was just so fun to write and you know there's also like I very much wrote what I would have wanted to read as a 16 year old gay girl in a country town you know so there's like obviously a lesbian romance in it and also I wanted to depict northern New South Wales how it actually is because I feel like a lot of people in cities have such sort of this like almost utopic vision of it Um, I don't realize like how isolating it is growing up there as a teen and like you know the issues around like you know you take so many drugs growing up in a country area because there's nothing else to do you know so I really presented in quite like a in a very realistic way to the point that it's almost kind of like Australian sort of gothic in parts but that was so much fun to write and so hopefully that will get picked up by a publisher I only finished it recently and now I'm working on a third book which is good yeah fantastic and is the third book something different again yeah it's something completely different it's about I feel like a lot of women will relate to this it's about like a you know two girls who are best friends as kids and kind of have this like kind of like competitive relationship with each other and end up in the same career and it's about they have a friendship falling out in their 20s Mm-hmm. and I tell the friendship falling out from both of their points of view so one chapter from one point of view and one from the other to show the ways in which you're but it's the same dialogue but their thought 
the thoughts behind the dialogue are completely different and it's to show the way that the insecurities and also your complex history with someone influences the way in which you interpret dialogue so like you know sometimes you have something go down with someone and you're like oh they're being so reactive to me and then when you have some distance from it you're like oh I was being really reactive to them as well like I thought they were having a go at me they thought I was having a go at them and you're just like clashing and so it's like yeah, very much about those sort of like arguments that can go on between two people who are like very, very old friends. Mm, yeah. Brilliant. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so exciting. And so, you know, what do you think this means then? Because obviously writing is just very natural and easy for you and something that you're passionate about. So I can't imagine that that's going to go away anytime soon. And then what happens with your sex work? Because, you know, you've talked about it being, it's not just a means to an end, you you know, there's a lot that you get from it too, particularly with the relationships with the women Mm. in the girls' rooms and, you know, that community and connection that you have there. So what would be like the perfect scenario for you in five years time? To be honest, what I've had before, like this current lockdown was pretty ideal in that I was doing one shift a week at the brothel. I was doing every Friday and it was so, I was loving it so much more than I've loved it in a while because it's so nice to be doing it and not completely financially relying on it. And so I can see myself continuing just doing one shift a week forever really and I also do I do do some escorting like I probably get one escorting job a week so really I'm probably doing two days of sex work a week but that's like a pretty perfect balance for me I think in terms of writing and sex work yeah yeah plenty of time to write in between and plenty of time to see your friends as well exactly yeah Yeah. well hopefully soon yes in the COVID normal scenario yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so I guess you know for people that might still be wondering like okay like what does it really mean this sex work industry like I guess what I'm trying to do is bust some myths for people Mm. so I mean I think I could probably guess the answer but what would you say would be the best part of your job oh there's a few really good parts about it I love that I'm always unexpectedly reminded of the sort of like spontaneity and randomness of human connection. Like when I connect with someone that I never normally have anything to do with otherwise. And as you mentioned before, I love the community of women that I work with and I love the flexibility that the work's brought me. I think, I think those would be the main things. Yeah. And what would be the most surprising thing do you think for people to learn maybe about the clients? Oh God. I just think that, clients are just normal men you know I think often people like want to demonize clients or you know homogenize them and think they're like a certain kind of and to be honest I shouldn't even say they're normal men because there are also a lot of clients that are women like I see a lot of women clients I see a lot of couples also you know non-binary clients like it's not like they're all men but like statistically the majority of them are cis straight men so I often refer to them as men but I think that you know human touch and a connection is like a very is a very basic need and I personally think there's nothing wrong with paying for that and so yeah clients are very much just people that walk among you they're your brother they're your dad maybe they're your auntie and your uncle booking a sex worker for their 40th you know wedding anniversary you know like it's like they are they're just people 
what I feel like a lot of the time people want to like sort of gain acceptability for people booking sex workers by being like oh what if it's a disabled man who doesn't get touched in any other way and whilst of course that's valid it's also fine for a man who's able-bodied successful and good-looking to book a sex worker because he doesn't have time to date you know what I mean there's nothing there's nothing more wrong with that you know so that's what I would probably want people to realize about clients yeah Mm, yeah and is there anything else that you think it would be important for people to understand about the industry and why you're talking so candidly about it? God, I mean, I could say so much about this. I feel like there's nothing, I mean, really at the end of the day, it comes down to needing to reduce stigma around sex work because obviously like stigma traps women. I mean, and I said, once again, I know not all sex workers are women, but largely they're cis women it traps women in so many scenarios you know like as I said stigma can make a woman have her children taken off her in a custody battle or you know it means maybe her family will never speak to her again so like you know sex work and then also the other important thing is that like you know legislation like most of the countries of the world have criminalization of sex work New South Wales is one of the few places in the world with decriminalization. You know, there's like the only other places in Northern Territory and New Zealand, you know, huh. like, wow. yeah, only places in the world with decrim. So all around the world, women are getting locked up in jails um, for doing sex work that they need to do to support their families or support themselves. And so for me, there's like such like a, I am in such a privileged position to work in New South Wales where I'm not under threat of violence from the police. You know, like sex workers get raped by the police a lot of the time in places. I'm not, don't have to worry about being thrown in jail. So that also drives me to speak about you know, my life in the sex industry, because if it change any one person's mind, like we need, you know, like we need, it needs to be like slow generational change because people's minds don't change like that. Like it happens mm-hmm. across generations and that needs to be done in order to change laws in other countries. So sex workers can work more safely because like at the end of the day, like we are human and we need human rights. And we also are workers who need labor rights, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And I, it's interesting that you talk about labor rights and because that's something you talk about a lot in your book that mm. you consider yourself to be like a laborer. You labor, yeah. yeah, and you've got like physical tools that you use, yeah. but, you know, you are doing physical and emotional labor and that I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it because it's it's not, I think, a perspective that's been shared before. Yeah, I mean, definitely you hear it a lot in sex worker activist communities like it's it's a it's a perspective that's been pushed for a while like the term sex worker itself was coined by this um american sex worker called carol lay in the 70s and she coined the term sex work to emphasize the fact it was work and to tie it with workers rights Mm -hmm. but it isn't something that like the average person thinks about in regards to sex work yeah 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 all that fantasy and fear that gets yeah peddled (laughs) instead (laughs) Yeah, well, Tilly, I mean, there's so much more I would love to ask you, but, you know, I'm aware that we've been chatting for an hour now and probably need to wrap it up. (laughs) But if people want to follow you or keep up with what you're doing, where should they find you? Definitely just on Instagram. It's Tilly underscore lawless is the only real social media that I use. But, yeah, or buy my book. (laughs) Absolutely. And by the time this goes to air, I think your book, will be out because it comes out on the 3rd of August. 
So I highly recommend it to anybody who is even considering <laughs> picking up anything worth reading. This is a brilliant piece of writing, Tilly, and you should be so proud of it. Thank you. Um, and I can't wait for people to read it and to hear what they think. So make sure you follow Tilly. I'll put your social media in the show notes so people yep. can find you easily. And I so look forward to reading all of your upcoming works. I hope everything gets picked up. I want to read both those books and keep up the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks, Tilly. All right. Bye. for listening we would love it if you left us a rating for this episode and catch up with yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on instagram and facebook at the curious life podcast and if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer use ours julie reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade check out audiolemonade.com.au